Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode of the Human Centered Leadership Podcast. Now, this is a program that's dedicated to just having some inspired conversations with incredible leaders out there from all forms of industry at the very top end of the game. We're going to be speaking to these individuals to find out what emotional intelligence in practice looks like. That's what we call human-centered leadership. Now, emotional intelligence comes in all guises, has so many different strands, and we're going to be teasing out from each one of these individual uh, guests who have we have on this program specific things that they are doing that is driving their leadership and uh, their performance of uh, their staff, their team, their colleagues, their family, their friends, whoever it may be, uh, through an emotionally intelligent kind of way. So. Our guest here today is a, is a remarkable individual. I met him. I had the good fortune of meeting him several months ago. It might even have been nearly a year ago, actually. Uh, I had the great honor of meeting Tom Clark Forrest. Um, we were at an event together. We had a really inspired conversation. and I've never really truly forgotten him since then. See, Tom is the founding CEO of an organization. It's a charity called Sport for Life. And what they do in Sport for Life is they help young people to get into uh, education, into employment, training, or whatever further opportunities might exist out for them. But they do it through a sport-themed kind of personal development uh, activity. I love it. I love the idea. And it just mirrors up so many things. It, it brings mindset, it brings a body together, and it, it helps to create aspirations with younger people. They support 1,000 young people a year, which is remarkable. Uh, and Tom has led the organization from its very, very start. 15 years in total, uh, it has become the leading sport for employability charity in the West Midlands. It now employs 24 people with a turnover of 1.4 million. And Tom himself has been named as the future face of charity and social enterprise in Birmingham. So I'm looking forward to an inspired conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thanks very much, Cole. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure and I'm really looking forward to it. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while, to be honest. Ever since we had that conversation uh, way back when, it, whenever it was, uh, and you talked me through the history of uh, Sport for Life. Do you want to just share with our listeners today what Sport for Life is, how it came to your mind and how it grew and how you've managed to get it to where it is right now? Yeah, Sport for Life was founded back in 2006 um, and I actually founded the organization with my brother and we started the organization straight after university and we were really thinking about our key passions, um, what really motivates us in life. Um, and instead of doing the kind of linear path of graduate jobs like a lot of our friends were, we wanted to do something a little bit different. And 
when we're talking about our key passions, sport, sport was up there. Played so much sport at school, university, played it quite competitively, not well enough to make it professionally, unfortunately, but um, really competitive with my brother growing up and really believed in the power of sport, not just what it did for our physical health, but for our mental health and well-being, for the life skills that it taught us, what it taught us when we lost, when things didn't go quite so well. Mm. Um, had a huge passion for Birmingham, born and bred um, f- from the Midlands as well. And uh, with some of the founding trustees, we had quite an interest in health inequalities in in inner city Birmingham as well. And so we really just put all those things together and we got something called Sport for Life started. Um, But if I'm being perfectly honest, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. We had no staff, no money, um, no idea. And for the first few years, actually, so from about 2006 to 2009, 10, it was much more focused on outputs as opposed to outcomes like it is today. Mm. We're focused on participation of young people in sport, um, which is really good. And we were getting a lot more people, young people active and a lot of benefits that that brought. But in 2010, we had quite a big strategic change. We changed the way in which we use sport. It became just the vehicle, the conduit, the tool to go on to achieve something much more tangible with young people. And that's where we that kind of shift towards being a sport for development, a sport for social good organization started. And the legacy of that is still alive today, really. That shift was twofold, really. One was from a funding perspective. We wanted to engage with non-sports funders in the sector. Um, and more importantly, it was about consultation with hundreds of young people from inner city Birmingham who told us that their needs transcended just participation and playing sport. And it's kind of cut a really long story short from 2010 to now. So over those 12 years, we really um, just developed and iterated our model. We became much more targeted on a specific age range and a specific mission around using sport to improve employability prospects and support young people into sustained employment, educational training. We grew into new areas of the city, now regionally, grew our team, increased our turnover, etc. And really just with that vision and mission at the heart of everything we do in our belief that sport has the power to change lives we've kind of grown into the organization that you you explained at the start that's brilliant and what what an incredible story a story of growth and you know you've had to grow as 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 the organization has grown and uh, you've had to change the way that you think and the way you see the world and uh, that that's helped the growth of the organization going forward. Uh, One of the things I I really love about the whole concept of sport for life is this is not really focused on those technical skills that we are having drummed into us throughout our entire school life or university and thereafter. This is really about life skills essentially isn't it you're using the 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 sport of vehicle but essentially what you're teaching people is our life skills that are going to make them uh thrive in the outside world absolutely yeah so our key activities are sports one-to-one mentoring we deliver accredited qualifications we do youth-led social action and we do employer encounters and encounters of the workplace for young people so Mm -hmm. that includes Uh, mock interviews, workshops, uh, work placements, things like that. 
but you're right it's that that kind of combination of activities that supports young people to improve their key life skills so we're talking about their communication respect teamwork leadership um, resilience and those life skills are hugely important in in their walk of life but also in the world of work and whilst we do focus on and improve certain technical skills and accredited qualifications you're right it's it's those life skills that we really believe in and we believe that sport is a really powerful vehicle to mm. really transform some of those life skills and we can evidence that change that we make as well we use we use an industry standard tool called outcome star that tracks the changes in life skills of our young people and currently this year we're operating at about 90 95% life skills transformed for all young people that engage in our programs that's incredible so what's this tool that you're using because i mean very often one of the things that uh, organizations will say to me is uh, when I, when I go in and I talk to them about changing their culture, about creating a mo- more emotionally intelligent culture, and I'm saying, you know, happy people are more productive people, and therefore at the bottom line, you'll see some results. Uh, but when they say to me, can you give me something tangible? I, I'm, I've always looked for a tool. How do I demonstrate that the work that we do actually correlates to increased and improved performance? So tell me a bit more about this tool. This tool is specifically on our programs. So it's with our beneficiaries, our young people aged 11 to 29. And it's an industry standard tool called Outcome Star. And it effectively tracks the changes in life skills of a young person across their journey with our organization through our model. So it, it is self-reported, but it's it, there's a lot of evidence behind it. And it's done in, in consultation with our mentor, with the young person, who's that kind of one person that, um, is continually with all of our beneficiaries throughout their journey and pathway with us. And they, they plot where they're at at the start of their journey with us, and then they do it at the midpoint and at the end um, of their time with us as well. And bear in mind, we're working with young people for up to 12 months. It's quite quite longitudinal, quite intensive. And by tracking it at the start, the midpoint and the end, we can really monitor any difference in their key life skills and there has to be a certain a certain level of change for us to count it as a positive outcome um, but we've got we've got a really good um, head of research and impact who knows more about the technicalities of that than I would it's fascinating nonetheless and uh, you know clearly it's 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 working uh, clearly uh, you are demonstrating from the skills, these life skills, fundamental life skills that you're teaching these young people, that you are getting a, uh, getting an improvement in their ability to communicate, their ability to have a greater awareness of what goes on in society. I mean, this is what emotional intelligence is all about for me. You know, it is about, uh, have you got good levels of self-awareness? And uh, if you have got those good levels of self-awareness and you find out there are certain things that aren't working for you, can you manage that behavior? Uh, and, and do you have a do you understand the nuances of the environment around you, and can you develop relationships? And all, all of what you have said fits into that category very, very well. You mentioned communication as 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 a almost like a specific. What do you do to help uh, these these young people to improve their communication? Yeah, so lots of different things. I mean, one key way in which we drive through some of these life skills is through the way in which we deliver our structured sports sessions. So it's not just a kick around in the park. We've designed our session plans in such a way that they're really getting to the heart of some of these key life skills, some of these skills that we want young people to improve. And that's done in both a conscious and a subconscious way. So imagine a football session, 
there's so many different drills we could do. It might be that they're not allowed to speak, but they've got to articulate communication non-verbally. It might be that we, we change who the captain is on a team. They've got to pass to every single person before they score. You have to applaud even if the other team score. There's, there's so many different ways in which we can mold the session to really drive through some of these key, key life skills. That's fascinating. It really does demonstrate how unique uh, the work that Sport for Life is doing. And, you know, arguably people could just say, well, it's just sport, isn't it? But the way you've just described it there, it's it's sport as the vehicle. But what you're doing is you're, you're introducing so many different concepts that uh, really play into how do we improve the way that we communicate? How do we improve the way that we lead uh, teams? Um, and, and I applaud you for that. Tell me, why do you think life skills are so important for young people? In today's today's market and job market, um, employers are really looking for those skills. I think that's that's why it's so vital. And if we're trying to progress young people into sustained employment, educational training, yes, they're more kind of tangible, fixed skills and uh, technical skills and credited qualifications really important for the workplace. But they're also looking for some of these key life skills. How can you get on with colleagues? How can you have a growth mindset? How can you receive feedback? How can you try and improve yourself each day at work? do you bring your whole self to work? Um, how do you treat failure? You know, so many really important skills that are required to to succeed and to thrive in the workplace. And, and that's why we think it's so important that young people are equipped with those as well. And it's so true. You know, you, I, I, it simply accords with me at every different, every, every single level that you're talking about. Uh, and, and I think, you know, uh, one of my frustrations has been that, uh, you know, my own wife is a teacher and I listen to her talking about the children that she's trying to uh, develop through her school. She works in a a very challenged environment when it comes to schooling in a a pupil referral unit. Uh, So these are the children with the highest levels of behavioural difficulties and challenges um, or or, or health challenges uh, coming to her school. And she's so passionate about them passing her uh, these exams. Uh, and we very often have the discussion, I say, it's surely it's more than just exams. Uh, I come from the standpoint that uh, exams, if you like, are your IQ, and the IQ only gets you so far to a door. But once you're through that door, how well you do is really around your EQ, your emotional quotient, and so much of what you have said talks to the emotional quotient aspect of it. Uh, so much has been my frustration around this that later on this year we're going to be uh, uh, um, releasing a, a leadership program, which is a qualification for 16 to 18-year-olds, a qualification in leadership and in emotional intelligence, uh, purely to to talk to some of the key issues that you've talked about there, Tom. And I think that since we left Brexit and this country now is almost, well, it is this island now in this world where it, it paves its own way. I think one of the things that we can produce from as a country are great leaders. Uh, so I want to be a part of that. We had this discussion about uh, you being within the West Midlands and I asked you a question then. You're doing so well. Surely you should be looking at expanding nationally because, again, you will be producing uh, those leaders of the future. Yeah, no, thank you. And um, and by the way, that leadership program you're doing with 16 to 18 year olds sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, so good on you for that. Yeah, I think in terms of our growth, we do, we have a kind of two-phased approach to our growth strategy. So we do want to grow into further areas within the West Midlands. Um, it's only a few years since we made the shift from being 
just Birmingham and focused on the city to um, a regional organization mm-hmm. and working in a few key new areas. But the second part of that is is our ambition to become national. So absolutely, watch this space. <laughs> but I think in terms of what you're saying, that growth is going to, at the heart of that, is going to be our human-centered leadership. And, and that's how we've come so far in 15 years. We haven't always got it right. I haven't always got it right. But everything you're saying about, you know, EQ compared to IQ is just fundamental to the way we do business. And if we are going to succeed in the future, we are going to grow and we are going to become national, that human-centered leadership has to be at front and center. I think you're so right, Tom. Uh, In any industry, I genuinely believe that the future of leadership is not the leadership that we used to experience back in the day, even up to recent years. I think there's been a seismic shift in the way people think as a result of, you know, the whole pandemic and lockdown and uh, the, the, this, this, this bringing us right back down to the, the very basic of human needs. Um, I think people now are looking at the places of employment saying, do I feel valued? Do I feel safe? Is this the kind of culture that I want to work in? And that's what's led to so many people leaving organizations. And we've got like the highest turnover uh, that we've had in recent years of people leaving their organizations and even going to lesser paid jobs, uh, which a few years ago might sound a bit incredulous, but now I completely understand it. So, you know, um, through programs like Sport for Life, uh, through the understanding and the embracing of EQ as I think the future superpower, uh, for any organization and any leader. Uh, I think uh, that's the way that we need to be now focusing our thoughts. So tell me, what are you doing with the, uh, with your staff? I mean, your organization has grown so much. We talk about human, human centered leadership. What do you, what are you doing with your staff to keep them motivated, keep them inspired, to keep them, you know, powering forward and thriving in this very complex world? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I mean, in terms of human-centered leadership, for me, there's so much that comes into it. But ultimately, it's it's treating employees and colleagues as human beings. And, and human beings have wants and needs and desires and not treating them as resources um, just to generate a profit or a surplus um, in our case. You mentioned something similar. It feels like there has been that seismic shift. It's a shift away from the old command and control approach towards a much more coach-led and bottom-up one. Yeah. And I think you mentioned some of these things, but it, it feels like our approach needs to really appeal to our employees' intrinsic motivations. And that's, they want somewhere to feel safe. They want somewhere to belong. They want purpose and they want autonomy. And so we've got a real responsibility to yes, train young people, give them the skills they need, but then really support and empower them and kind of, and then let go, really. We have a bit of a um, teamship at Sport Life where we say we have trust until we have reason not to. And so we will we will always give trust. And, you know, it's about valuing people as individuals. They want to be respected, empowered and trusted, helping them to thrive, Um Employees are much more likely to positively engage and innovate and help the organization to survive and grow with this human-centered approach. And I I think for us, um, it's really closely linked to one of our values, actually, which is progressive. And it's about having a growth mindset. And I think the human-centered leadership approach really advocates a growth mindset. Talent is just the starting point. Um, And 
it's like you said, you know, the, the shift from IQ to EQ, talent isn't just binary um, and that's just the starting point. There's always a continual journey and evolution. Uh, and within growth mindset, I think for us, there's there's kind of two real key things um, that have been central to our approach. And one is feedback and one is failure. Mm. Feedback, we always want the feedback to be constructive. Um, we want a culture and environment where people want to be challenged and we want to give feedback without hesitation. We want to receive it with appreciation. And, you know, even if we don't like the feedback, we want to appreciate the fact that someone's um, thought enough about us to come and give us that feedback. And also when it comes to feedback, it's also, if you're going to ask for feedback, you've got to create the environment where the person feels it can give you accurate feedback. That psychological safety space is really important. And, and I think failure as well, it's, we want to see failure as an opportunity to grow. Mm. If you if you prohibit prohibit failure, you kill innovation. Feels like it's a necessary precursor to learning and development. I don't know anyone that hasn't failed at some point within our organisation. Sometimes the balance there is difficult. Of course, we don't. I know it's on trend talking about failure, but we don't. I don't want my team to fail. I don't want us to fail. Yeah. But we recognise. It will happen. It's a precursor to learning and development. We don't stigmatize it. And we look at the problem and the behavior, not the character or the person. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And and, and you're so right. You know, if you are moving forward in life, in business, even if you're just going for a walk, it's an inevitability that you're going to come across some kind of a challenge. And that you, however you deal with that challenge, there could have been better ways of dealing with that challenge. So that can be seen as a failure. Providing you're awake to that failure, it becomes an opportunity. If you're not awake to that failure, then it remains a failure, doesn't it? Absolutely. So what you're talking about is failure can can become an opportunity if you know the failure and if you learn from that failure and if you then do things differently going forward. Absolutely. Uh, And I think absolutely right. So human-centered leadership this is what I'm passionate about. And clearly you're as passionate as I am around this, but there will be some people listening in some leaders, maybe perhaps we don't attract that kind of a leader, but there there may be some that says, well, do you know what? Um, It's all very well uh, treating other people like human beings and, uh, and, 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 and and going in deep, but human beings are very complex animals. And, you know, by the very nature that we're humans, we have so many complexities. And if the leader in the workplace were to try and understand or address some of these complexities, it would take up all your time. And that's not what our time should be about. What would you say to them? I think I'd probably challenge that and say that we want to celebrate difference, that that, that difference in the workplace is, is what we want. And that's brilliant. And uh, it gives diversity of thought, diversity of approach, diversity of people. Um, diverse thinking gives better better results. We know that. And I think talking from my own experience and the journey we've been on 15 years at Sport for Life, I think looking at the results of that approach we've had to our leadership. As I said, we haven't always got it right. I'm nowhere near perfect. None of our staff are perfect, but we know the more we've pushed this and in recent years, we've had higher employee satisfaction. We've had growth financially and geographically. We've had more innovation. We've had less burnout, less presenteeism, higher retention, higher profit or surplus in our case, given our legal structure. 
by not focusing on profit solely, by not focusing on people as resources and, and investing in them and empowering them. And I suppose I've got, there is a bit of a, um, a kind of example, which was um, at the start of the pandemic. And, um, you know, we were faced with um, huge difficulties when this all kicked off in March 2020. Hugely challenging, really stressful, disruptive time for all of our staff. But we made we made some very deliberate and conscious decisions when we entered that, and as we were going purely virtual. And we realised, you know, we are we are a business of people that supports people. And if we want to give our young people and our beneficiaries the best possible service at their time in need, you know, they needed us more than ever during the pandemic. You know, all the disparities and inequalities and mm. what happened to youth unemployment, what happened to young people's yeah. mental health, they needed us so much. It was their time of need. And to give them the best possible service, we needed to support our people and support our staff who were working with them, not think of them as resources and worry about how we're going to keep the light on and, and deliver our activities. Those things are important, of course. So we really focused on people in a human-centered leadership way. So we had we had daily check-ins with staff. We changed the way in which we were doing one-to-ones and our line management structure. We improved and recommunicated our EAP service, employee assistance programs. So free counseling, free mental health support for staff. We increased increased our wellbeing and socials budget. Not that we could go out in person, of course, but we could do things virtually. We had weekly huddles where we all came together as a team and we fast-tracked a wellbeing committee that we, we were in the process of creating. And we also had specific support for our board and SLT. And Without going into the kind of finer details of how we then carried on our activities, the results were we didn't we didn't furlough any staff. We improved mm. the impact we had with our young people. We had higher results in in our staff satisfaction, and we grew thirty percent year on year, which you know was was bittersweet in the sense that we grew when when our true cause youth unemployment was so high, but it was absolutely to ensure we could support our young people who needed us at that time. And it was done by focusing on our people. That's incredible. And, you know, here's a prime example, isn't it? I mean, you don't need a piece of software really to tell you that human-centered leadership will work. Uh, all of the all of the uh, measures that you're talking about around productivity, around, um, you know, um, staff absenteeism uh, and staff uh, morale, all of these are simple measures that, that can be you know implemented fairly easily, but all of these demonstrated to you that um, you know things were improving as opposed to going backwards, uh, and that uh, your style of leadership and the culture within your organisation was a healthy one. And of course, I always say the happy people are productive people, and clearly your people were productive because you've grown year on year. So, Tom, I, I want to thank you for sharing your wisdom and thoughts with us. I, I wish you well in your future expansion because I can see that it will go in national eventually. Um, <laughs> thank you. I hope to see you impacting on so many other lives. And no doubt you and I will talk again at some point. Uh, I should be looking for pointers from you about my leadership development program. But uh, thank you so much for being on this program with us today. No problem. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. 
and of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care, have a great day.